Welcome to Victor's Children, a podcast from so-called Canada talking socialism from below. My name is David Canfield. I live with my partner and cat in Winnipeg, Manitoba, which is in Treaty 1 territory, the traditional territory of Anishinaabeg, Cree, Ojibwe, Dakota, and Dene peoples, and the homeland of the Métis Nation. All those of us in the Canadian state who aren't Indigenous need to commit ourselves to the struggle against settler colonialism. Victor's Children is a member of the Harbinger Media Network, a community working to promote left podcasts in Canada. Check out the list of Harbinger podcasts at harbingermedianetwork.com. Since October 2023, we've seen an unprecedented upsurge in activity and solidarity with Palestine within so-called Canada. I'm happy to be joined on this episode of Victor's Children by two people who've been deeply involved in this. You've both been extremely busy, so special thanks for making time for this conversation. Could you introduce yourselves to listeners? Uh, Maybe James first? Sure. Yeah, I'm James Hutt. Uh, I go by he and him. I'm a labor organizer and writer. Uh, I'm here on unceded Algonquin Anishinaabe territory, also known as Ottawa. Um, And I'm also on the National Syrian Committee of Labor for Palestine. Chandi? Yeah, um, my name is Chani Desai, um, she, her pronouns. Um, I'm a professor at the University of Toronto. Um, I'm speaking to you from the Dish With One Spoon territory um, in Tokoronto. Um, and I'm on the steering committee of Hearing Palestine and the Faculty for Palestine. Thank you. So to start with, what was your take on the state of Palestine solidarity activity in this part of the world before October 2023? Where were we at? James, do you want to start us off? And I'm going to just write out a few points that I want to make. Sure. Yeah, I'm happy to think about it for out loud for a little bit. Um, I mean, I think it, it would be easy to kind of be a bit glib about it and to say that like it's night and day from before October 7th to after and say that everything's kind of fundamentally different now. But it's really not that simple or easy. I think there's been... You know, the Palestine Solidarity Movement's always been very active. It's been very strong and it's gone through different changes and had different successes. I think um, the just massive outpouring we've seen since October of new people getting involved and trying to find their footing has like led to that sort of stark contrast. But, um, you know, I remember it's always kind of been a big issue in Canada and especially on the left. I remember starting university uh, and seeing Palestine protests and solidarity protests and people that I looked up to and uh, cared about on the left were clearly committed to Palestine solidarity. And that was kind of the milieu. And it took me a while. Like I still, I knew nothing about it at the time and, but it was still there. And I think it's kind of gone hand in hand with left and left organizing across uh, Canada for a long time. Um, And there's been a number of organizations who've been working very hard to lay the groundwork for all the sorts of explosions of interest that have happened since, uh, you know, so like independent Jewish voices has been cohering uh, non-Zionist Jews to really speak out about what's being done in their name, uh, an organization like uh, Canadians for Just Peace in the Middle East, um, Labor for Palestine, uh, of course, has been active for since 20, uh, 2006. Um, and then, but even before that, you know, kind of back when I was in my early 20s, there were people from that generation across Canada and on campus is in particular part of, you know, Students Against Israeli Apartheid and coalition, uh, the Coalition Against Israeli Apartheid and the many chapters they had, they were really working to build solidarity with Palestine and to oppose Israeli apartheid and to do a lot of the uphill education 
uh, that had to be done about the fact that Israel is an apartheid state and what that meant, what it meant for Palestinians, what it meant for Canadian complicity. Um, and all of those organizations have been do laying that groundwork for kind of everything that's come since. Um, and I think, you know, there's there's also an interesting element too, where there's a number of like Palestinian organizations in Canada, uh, like there's Palestinian youth movement, which is fairly new. It's a lot younger. I think it's in like two or three years that they've had the first Canadian chapter. Um, and then before, like other than that, there's a largely like Palestinian cultural and social organizations, but not necessarily like decidedly political ones to give sort of strategic leadership to the movement. And it's kind of tough to wrap your head around that for a while, especially as you're trying to do solidarity work. Um, but I think, yeah, some of the many reasons for that are just like the repression that they've faced in Canada, uh, in speaking out, especially around the time of the Second Intifada, but also the sort of fracture that happened in the Palestinian, Palestinian liberation movement writ large and the divisions that happened within the West Bank and Gaza and all the sorts of things that we can get into there. Um, and so now it's kind of this funny sense where these organizations have been working and doing and building um, to see what kind of comes next. And I think if you talk about the, the Palestine Solidarity Movement in Canada, you have to think of not just a steady line, but a sort of um, in a relationship to both the broader left in Canada, like what's going on, how organized are we, how much of a left is there, and then what's happening in Palestine. And then we see with waves of Israeli repression, there's a huge spike in interest and involvement. Um, it just also gives some like more of that history, like connection to history. Uh, Labor for Palestine has existed since uh, 2006 and have been working. We picked up the call uh, for boycott divestments and sanctions and really worked with labor unions. That's our focus to educate and engage members and then to adhere and pick up that call for BDS. And so um, over the last roughly 20 years, we've had a, number, had a lot of success. You know, there's the... The first BDS resolution in Canada was with QP Ontario in 2006. The first national one was with the Postal Workers Union in 2008. Uh, CSN in Quebec in 2009. PSAC was 2012. Sorry, the Public Services Alliance of Canada. There's a lot of acronyms I should probably spell out. Uh, and Unifor in 2017. Um, but all that to say is just that like, there's been a long history in which everyone doing stuff now is building on in the past generations, even well before that, that have been going back for decades. Um, and then more specifically within Labor of Palestine, we relaunched in about 2018 with a new generation of people to really think about the strategic value that the labor movement has and that workers have to challenge imperialism and to build solidarity with Palestine. And uh, recognizing that we've had a lot of successes in getting unions to pass BDS resolutions, boycotts, boycott divestment and sanctions resolutions, um, but that often they weren't fully actualized. They were often just sitting on the shelf and recognizing that we needed to get unions to actually do more to make those real. Um, and so it's funny, I was uh, pre-October, we were talking in Labor for Palestine, we were renewing the coordinating committee, the steering committee. Uh, and we weren't sure we were going to get enough people to actually get going and get enough volunteers to actually keep the organization growing at pace. Uh, and then, of course, since October 7th, we've just had thousands of new people join and get involved. And we've had, uh, I think, 10, nine chapters around the country and about a dozen union caucuses start. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I I agree with so much of what has been said, and in a sense, um, you know, the uh, 
when I had come in to the Palestine Solidarity Movement around um, 15 years ago and I moved to the city, um, the formation that I joined was Students Against Israeli Apartheid in Toronto at the University of Toronto. Um, and that was the student arm of the Coalition Against Israeli Apartheid that James mentioned. And in the context of Toronto, and I would also say Canada, it was one of the most important, you know, sort of major organizations that provided strategic leadership um, to, I think, the solidarity movement um, writ large in terms of it was a driver of building a solidarity movement. At the same time, it was also led by a lot of Palestinians who had strategic vision and strategic leadership in also influencing many other social movements, the labor movement being one of them. Um, but there were various angles in which um, coalition against Israeli apartheid essentially uh, many terrains that it influenced. And I think two major areas or three major areas, it really influenced and then I think set the groundwork for in which we're here today is um, the labor movements or Labor for Palestine being the labor arm of the organization, Faculty for Palestine, which is the faculty and academic arm um, of the organization. And then the student movement, which was, you know, many of the student groups that formed um, and organized on their campuses in relation to Palestine, uh, you know, there was there was that arm as well. And then, of course, it engaged the, the broader community and um, racial justice movements, feminist movements, anti-imperialist movements, um, and of course, uh, um, had, you know, ties also with Jewish uh, anti-Zionist um, left organizations. So in many ways, um, I think I just want to echo the trajectory that James has highlighted in that. And and before that, you know, there were groups like Alauda and um, other other groups that did, you know, that organized. They were also student groups on campuses uh, where Palestinian students were organizing in small collectives. Um, and I think one of the major aspects with with Kaya's infrastructure and also the at the time, the even like our analytics are shifting. Right. So it's like there's the movement aspect. And I want to talk about how this moment has brought us into this expansion. But in that in the early days, we were trying to shift the analysis from this is, you know, sort of post second intifada where the 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 conversation was on dialogue and trying to um engage in sort of an occupation analysis and on that period the goal of a generation of us was to try to shift that into really putting the analysis of the apartheid framework into the um into the consciousness of a lot of people and part of that was also because in order to we when we shift analytics we then can shift strategy right and Part of BDS and the BDS movement, because these organizations emerged, you know, in, in the same time that the BDS call from Palestine came. And James mentioned that part of the part of the issues around strategic leadership were some of the kinds of political fractures in terms of the Palestinian left or the Palestinian community, both in Palestine and here, but also um there were many sort of in the post Oslo period, there were many critiques of the directions that the Palestinian leadership had taken um, and various kinds of ways, especially that, especially when the Palestinian Authority started to collaborate with the occupation, um, there no longer was this kind of unified uh, leadership anymore that once perhaps existed when the PLO in its heyday was able to um you know, talk to the global South or the world around a revolution and what solidarity meant and would look like. So 
in many senses, in this moment, BDS, the BDS movement, right, or the BDS campaign, um, when all of these civil society organizations in Palestine came together and put the call out for BDS, that became a really important way in which solidarity sort of started to become reframed in that people were now thinking about the 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 call for BDS and boycott, divestments, and sanctions, but also the demands, right, around a unified demand around the right of return of the refugees, equality for Arab citizens of Israel, you know, ending the occupation of the West Bank and Gaza. And if you want to expand it even further, the ending of, um, you know, talking about the political prisoners, taking down the wall. So when we started to see this massive sort of um, unification of Palestinians from inside 48, the West Bank and Gaza, as well as Palestinians in the diaspora, and a targeted campaign that was, you know, building from the anti-apartheid movement in South Africa, that then became its own kind of momentum around trying to then bring BDS into the labor movement or bring BDS into the campus movements or bring BDS into academic associations or academic conversations. Um, and so in a sense, that that groundwork, you know, people think that this explosion of consciousness around Palestine is happening because of social media. And we, we've we seen that in so many moments in history where in recent history, where, for example, when there's a moment where, you know, George Floyd is murdered and racial justice movements come to organize and take the streets and make demands for abolition. It's this kind of idea that, you know, people just came to the streets and young people called for these radical ideas and all of a sudden the world moved with it erasing like 30 to 40 years of feminist, black feminist, abolitionist, organizing, theorizing, all of this kind of work. And I would say, I would say that about this moment where we're seeing in the labor movement and the student movement and the faculty um, arena, we're seeing mass amounts of people that want to join organizations. So similar to, you know, what James said, we were trying to have this, a similar conversation with our L4P comrades this summer, like, where do we take this? Are we going to have enough faculty or enough people to sustain it? Our organizations were undergoing changes. You know, we were thinking about long-term things. We were also in conversation with comrades in South Africa. And 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 this moment, we're under restructuring with faculty for Palestine at this time because of the overwhelming number of faculty that want to not just engage uh, with the with the cause, but also really thinking about BDS and other kinds of strategic things that we can do to support the Palestinian um, academic sphere, given there's a scholasticide in which, you know, the academic sector and the educational infrastructure and sector has been completely destroyed um, in Gaza, particularly. So in a sense, this kind of moment has been both exciting and overwhelming, but also we're seeing a shift now in analytic from apartheid to genocide, right? Um, and what has been really interesting is that when I was in the student movement, we worked, like James was saying, to put motions into our unions on the floor. So when you look at major universities in Canada, at the undergraduate and graduate level, most unions, whether that was QPs, right, QP locals, whether that was graduate students associations, whether that was undergraduate student unions or associations, all of them pretty much at this stage have BDS resolutions because that's the kind of work that came out. Now, on the faculty level, you know, it was harder to do that work because obviously unions or faculty associations and unions are much more conservative and there is much more of a, of a fight around the Zionist lobby in those spaces. Whereas I think students are a bit more, you know, on the progressive side and we're able to move these things forward. But similar to what James said, we haven't been able to see 
actual divestment and um, boycotts, right? So we have resolutions. They're very important because what they, that enabled was the creation of committees that allow you to do research, educationals, these kinds of things that, you know, Israeli Apartheid Week organizers were doing. And so in this moment, you know, how do we revive some of those campaigns that, you know, U of T had a divestment campaign, York had one, Carlton had one, McGill had a Technion uh, boycott campaign. And the idea is that many of them have been a little outdated because things are changing. But as this moment has come and we're seeing this overwhelming desire for people to organize, but also politically engage with BDS and really calling for an end to the arms trade and an end to, you know, institutional ties with Israel, I think I'm seeing a completely new horizon of opportunity. Um, and that's to also um, also remind folks and, and you know, that while these things are happening in our unions, the streets are so, so important. And here we have, you know, all kinds of organizations in this moment, including a new Palestinian youth movement that is, you know, has been active and doing a lot of the street organizing of the protests and the demonstrations. So including Labor for Palestine and other major organizations that are at the forefront of some of the major um, demonstrations. But the point, I think, is that this without the groundwork of what has been created over the last two decades, we couldn't be able to move this quickly. I don't think without the Alpha P structure, you could have just been doing the labor organizing. Without, you know, the faculty structure, we couldn't be just organizing faculty. Without the student movement structures, we couldn't be doing student movement related work even still. And I think the final thing just on this question is that in a sense, even though some of these infrastructures might need reviving or re-strategizing or rethinking, um, without that groundwork, I don't think we would have been prepared for this moment. I think it would have been really random. I think it would have been maybe, you know, unorganized. And I think what I'm seeing is a lot of people that were trained from that period have all come back together to really take leadership in this moment, at least in the context that I'm in here in Canada and in Toronto. I think, um, just to say one thing, I think that's absolutely brilliant. And it's funny, we're in the process of rewriting our basis of unity and statement of principles for Labor for Palestine. And I think it was last written in 2009. And in it, we have the situation in Israel-Palestine closely resembles apartheid. And at the time, it felt like that was pushing it and really pushing it forward. And now it's just such an obvious thing to see that cultural shift, but also like that work that, that Chani was talking about to really lay the groundwork. And like, you know, it's with the Postal Workers Union here in Canada, they've built such a strong connection and tie to the Postal Workers Union in Palestine that like, if you speak, it's kind of like the flip of the rest of the society, where if you speak against Palestine, you're viewed as a weirdo and like odd and you're ostracized and, you know. It's yeah, and that's kind of that shifting cultural and conditions that allow us to do more. I think a lot of it is still pretty disorganized right now, but what we can do is a testament to everything that's come before. So I'm going to ask you now, if you could focus in terms of things that have happened since October 7th, what do you think are the most, you know, the, the, the key developments and the key strengths of the wave of activity that we've seen since then? I'd like to hear what you have to say about that. Yeah, I mean, I'll start off at the top. And then I think we've just seen a wave of support, of outpouring from all walks of life and from everyday people. You know, I remember, I think, on, there was, I, think I went to a rally on October 8th or so, and just there was maybe a couple hundred people. And then from there, it's grown. And where I live in Ottawa, there's been weekly, often two or three times per week, there's just been demonstrations where it's been 
some of the largest demonstrations the city's ever seen, upwards of like 10, more than 10, close to 15,000 people in the streets and rain or shine or snow or minus 20 degree weather, that's continued. Um, and there's a sense where people are just attuned to what's happening in Palestine. They're trying to get more information, you know, just going to the radical bookstores in town. They tell me they can't keep the Palestine books on the shelf. And so there's just this, this hunger to find out more, to do more. There's a like a real appetite from everyone to figure out how to stop this horror. And for people who I don't think necessarily considered themselves on the left before or considered themselves Palestine solidarity activists. And I think um, that's one of the really beautiful things about it, on top of all the horror of what's happening. Uh, and I think we might look back at this current moment as a really deeply radicalizing event, maybe in a generational way, the same the same sort of way that you know the war in Iraq or Occupy Wall Street was, where it just put thousands, if not millions, of people into action and changed their consciousness. And I think about it with my extended family, who's not overly political, and they're just asking me, they're like, well, James, why would Canada do this? Canada says they support peace. Why would they send arms? Or like, just talking about the contradictions that are apparent. And, you know, you listen to CBC, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, you listen to the news, and then people are seeing those contradictions and that hypocrisy for themselves, and they're just trying to grapple with it. And I think that's really opening up a lot of possibilities. One, for like people to have a critique of imperialism and the ways that our society is structured, um, but to do more. Um, and I think since October 7th, we've seen just so many people doing so much. There hasn't always been coordinated, it hasn't always been strategic, but there's weekly rallies and demonstrations in you know most major cities across Canada. There's been tons of direct actions targeting weapon manufacturers, sometimes shutting them down, getting people arrested. There's been um, a real rollout of targeting members of parliament and making sure they feel pressure and like disrupting their fundraisers. Um, I think it's still the case that anytime that Prime Minister Justin Trudeau does something semi-public, he kind of gets interrupted and shouted at if he goes to a restaurant. Every week you kind of see a new video of something like that. And within the labor movement, we've seen, I don't know, north of 50 or 60 resolutions ranging from ceasefire to full boycott divestments and sanctions, and an increase in number in union flags at rallies and demonstrations. And it's still very low, but there is a sense of shifting. And what I think the task before us, all of us, particularly in Labor for Palestine, though, is to build these structures to make sure that we keep engaging, keep educating, and keep shifting the conditions for longer term, post ceasefire, all the way towards to liberation. Yeah, I mean, I I, I would say a similar thing. Um, I'm going to start with October 7th and then sort of move through the days. The first couple of days that October, after October 7th were very difficult for people who absolutely know where they stand on Palestine and their solidarity is principled. And it actually understood what was going on in Palestine in relation to a 16-year siege in Gaza, right? First and foremost, the issue of political prisoners. I mean, one of the major demands that came out on October 7th was we want our political prisoners. The idea that there are 5,000 Palestinian political prisoners locked up for, you know, advocating for their liberation, advocating for self-determination, organizing, right? A right in under any 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 um under in any normal circumstance, this wouldn't land you in prison 
uh, for years, right? And much of the way the Israeli state, because it's a military occupation, people don't have civilian rights or laws. It's under uh, it's governed under military uh, rule and military laws. And so when that first moment on October 7th happened, and maybe perhaps the next day or the days after that, I think those that were that understand the broader historical political context and social context of Palestine and what has been taking place understood October 7th in relation to what anti-colonial liberation movements have done in history, whether that was in Africa, Latin America, um, or Asia, right? When anti-colonial movements and especially guerrilla movements fight against their colonizers and their occupiers, um, we've seen this kind of resistance in history. So in the first couple of days, we saw because of the way the media and the Canadian government took very specific positions and stances that completely branded everything as pro-terrorism or if you are in the streets demonstrating. I remember the first rally being quite small. It was five, maybe 100 people. Um, and it was primarily people from the Arab community. And I asked myself, where is the labor movement? Where are the feminists? Where's Where are the academics? Like, what's happening? The streets look different. And I think part of that is because in that moment, there was a kind of narrative in which um, anti-colonial resistance and anti-imperialist resistance was actually removed out of the frame. Um, There's a lot we did not know in those early days. And very quickly, um, as the United States government started to send billion dollars, billion dollar aid packages, and the Western world united very much in support of whatever Israel was going to do with impunity, um, it really concerned many of us because those of us that are also intellectuals of the region, we know what happened in 1982 with when Israel wanted to destroy the PLO infrastructure uh, and the Palestinian Liberation Organization's, you know, military apparatus. We knew exactly the kind of price that you know was paid for that for that um, uh, to to um, the resistance, including. Palestinian refugees in the in the you know UNRWA refugee camps of Sabra and Shatila. So immediately that's where you know many of us in a sense you could predict that this is going to be really bad. Um nobody knew it was going to be a genocide, you know, it, that it would turn into a full-blown genocide. But the point is that in those that th- that first week it was silence and it was people being incredibly afraid to speak and say something. And then very, very quickly, as we started to see the numbers, right, thousands of people being killed a day, hospitals being attacked um, and civilian infrastructure being targeted, immediately we started to see the shift change. And I think, James, I don't know if you feel this way, but it was one of the hospitals. As soon as there was one of the major hospitals that was bombed and like 500 people were killed in an instance, immediately the like thousands started to come to the streets. And I think that's when we started to see a real shift in terms of like, okay. And I think with the younger generation, the radicalization really is also because they're not watching CBC and the mainstream news media in this country, which has been, you know, completely full of misinformation on this issue. They have, they have been very, very uh, one-sided. Maybe now they're showing a bit more of the humanitarian destruction and catastrophe, but in the early days, the narrative was very much a colonial narrative that was, you know, constantly being repeated, not only just through the news channels, but through our parliamentarians and our political leaders discourse. And if anyone was like in the streets, there was this kind of um, especially here, like Olivia Chow was making all kinds of conflations 
between pro-terror rallies and being in the streets. So the radicalization, I think, started to really happen as we started to see more and more people die, sadly. Um, and I and I think that when we go back to the current the 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 previous sort of assaults on Gaza, 2009 is when we saw a large mass amount of people come to the movement. Every time Israel, you know, does this level of destruction and violence, we actually see much more people join, come to the streets. And in a sense, in 2009, the reason all of these organizations gain momentum is because of the 2008-2009 assault on Gaza. In that way, then we start to see an opening with young people like taking to the streets, then all of the movements, right? Ceasefire became a really simple way for not just the labor movement, but for many like human rights organizations, churches, faith-based groups to come together under a massive coalition to say, you know what, we agree at least on a ceasefire. We might not agree on this or that tactic, but we agree on a ceasefire. Then we start to see the numbers in the rallies grow and grow. And, you know, initially the question was, will this be able to be sustainable? But as James has mentioned, like the rallies have gotten bigger. They've become more diverse. You have contingents of every sort of broad spectrum of people, organizations, collectives in those uh, marches. And that's from Toronto to, let's say, Halifax or, you know, um, Ottawa, we saw a march on parliament, again, one of the biggest in the history um, in terms of the solidarity movement. And very quickly, I think what this is, is, is our Vietnam moment in which consciousness is changing. People are radicalizing and people are calling now for radical demands, right? Like supporting the end of, you know, our ties in terms of weapons, right? The government's ties around supplying weapons, people calling for an arms embargo, the the kind of ways in which parliamentarians are being held to account, whether that's on social media or disruptions that are being organized. Um, what One of the most remarkable things was when Fred Hahn in that initial day, uh, in the first couple of days, was, was attacked. I mean... Could you just identify... Uh, who Fred Hahn is for listeners? Yeah, the QP, uh, the QP national president. QP Ontario, sorry. One of the major stresses was, will they sack him? You know, will the union sack him? And I mean, there was a whole convention and then there were people that came to defense and 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 Fred Hahn got to keep his job. That wasn't the case with Sarah Jam. I mean, she was silenced in the in the legislature, but, um, you know, has has done a lot of work around trying to create her own uh, her own leadership around how she wants to engage in this moment with the government. So I think I, I, I offer these two examples because that to me was, yes, there was organizing probably of the rank and file, right, in, in the unions for, to get to that point. But usually we know that sometimes there are conserv conservative people in, in higher positions and different organizations that want to protect the organization from the backlash of, let's say, the pro-Israel lobby. Um, and so in that instance, to see that, I was like, this is remarkable. Like, this is a shift. This is that like, you know, because we are also seeing the rise of McCarthyism, but I'll get to that in a second. So what we are seeing is mass rallies. We're seeing neighborhoods organizing in like small pockets where weekly demonstrations or, you know, caroling during the holidays or bake sales and fundraisers and art um, art builds and all kinds of creative activity has been happening. We're seeing um, student walkouts from, you know, high schoolers to universities. We're seeing those. We're seeing teach-ins. Like, universities, since this has began, teach-in week after week. Like, the amount of events on Palestine, they're so overwhelming, you can't keep up anymore with what's happening. Um, the petitions. Every week, I see a new petition for something. Um, consumer boycotts. Like, they have been really high. We're also seeing 
companies like Starbucks and McDonald's really feel it in their um and in their monthly or annual reports. Like we're seeing figures around um numbers really changing. We're seeing the cultural sector trying to do some, you know, trying to engage and do something. On the one hand, use the arts, but on the other hand, also fight the IHRA because many of the IHRA is the International Holocaust RA Remembrance Alliance definition. And essentially, it's a definition in in simple terms that basically would criminalize and call anything around Palestine organizing solidarity and intellectual work on Palestine and any critique of Israel really out of these illustrative examples they have. They they really single out Palestine and the critiques of the state of Israel. It would it would become basically, you know, anything would would be constituted as anti-Semitic. So. In a sense, the cultural sector is fighting against the possibility of their museums or their major art institutions adopting something like the IHRA. You see queers uh, against, um, you know, Israeli apartheid or queers for Palestine reemerge in a new way where they're taking up the discourse of pinkwashing. Um, and so while we also see a rising McCarthyism, right, we see people being fired, people being doxxed, harassed. You see people being disciplined in their workplaces. On the other hand, you also see an overwhelming group of people that are coming to their defense. In this moment, we see an organization like Legal for Palestine emerge where volunteer um, lawyers came together to say, like, how can we actually, you know, defend people in this moment? So so on the one hand, you know, while October 7th was not necessarily met with um, open arms the first, I would say, week, maybe first 10 days, we saw a radical shift and the more and more violence Israel is committing and the more and more uh, people are speaking out against it, including this ICJ resolution or order, you know, calling it plausibly genocidal. It has given people even more um, courage to speak up in their workplaces um, and uh, the different, you know, places or spheres uh, of life. So, yeah, I don't know. In a nutshell, this is like me sort of running through um, some of the ways I think this moment has been uh, both a challenge, but an um, incredible opportunity around uh, building. I think the last thing I want to say is one area around the McCarthyism is that, and this is specific maybe to the academic sector, is while we defend people, sometimes we forget that we actually have to keep our eyes on Palestine. And I think movements, this is why the streets and or organizations that have a politics that constantly center what is happening to the Palestinian people and the demands of the Palestinian people, this is always really, really important because while people get wrapped up in the fights, you know, of the day to day with protecting folks, sometimes it's a distraction in which we actually forget that people are being slaughtered. And I think that has been one of the strengths of having organizations that then also get to uh, impart, you know, um, their leadership around how to deal with things strategically and move the conversation back to Palestine. Before we move on to talk about maybe some of the things that aren't happening and that need to happen, um, I just want to underline how important I think, how historic it is. There have been demonstrations and actions in so many parts of the Canadian state every week for months. Like, I really don't know of a historical parallel to this. That If you actually think about over a sustained period, every single week over months. That's not something we saw around the 2003 war in Iraq. It's not something we saw in the 1991 war in Iraq. It's not something that happened uh, around South Africa or Vietnam. So it's actually, there's something I think that's different. And that is part of this, the intensity of this radicalization in response to the intensity of the genocidal settler colonial violence that we're seeing. Um, 
that I think is is really significant and we need to to underscore. But I'd like to then just bridge us to talking about um, things that we think might be missing um, or things that haven't been happening and why. Uh, and I'll just, I guess, from the Winnipeg perspective, add that I think we need to not generalize too much from the experience of Ottawa and, and Toronto in and Montreal and Vancouver, um, that there is a lot of unevenness between cities um, because the existing Palestine solidarity uh, activity that was happening before October was at very different places. You know, there were in some places more uh, legacy of organizers and people who were involved in previous waves of activity and in other places fewer such people. And so the, the activity was starting from scratch without the benefit of some of those previous experiences that you talked about. Um, so I do think we just have to kind of recognize that the highly uneven nature of the situation across different different cities. I think the prairies being generally weaker um, than you find in places further east or or further west. Um, and I think one thing I'll just throw out there, and I'd be interested in your thoughts, I think it's something that's different from, uh, for example, the war on Iraq and the movement around that uh, in 2003, is that we haven't had the same kind of unitary structures I think there's been a lot of coordination, but it's been less common for there to be a kind of broad, a single broad coalition in a city that would be the central place of organizing as opposed to a whole number of different groups um, organizing. And even in smaller places, like in Winnipeg, there are a whole number of different groups, but they're, you know, they, they talk to each other, but they're also fairly fragmented. Um, so I think there's something different about the, the way the movement's taking shape. Maybe that could be a bridge to uh, thoughts you might like to share about things that haven't been happening and why. Chandy, I want you to go first this time. You say so many brilliant things that I makes me think. Sure. Um, I mean, you know, so I think I'm going to be candid around what I, what I think is missing. Um, I think that organizations that have existed or are revamping have done the best they can in this moment. You know, um, they're using the resources that they have they're using their like all all kinds of resources from their human resources to um, fundraising and different aspects of it. People are really trying their best in this moment. So it's not a critique at all. But what when when you're a movement and you're organizing and you don't have massive amounts of resources to have paid staff. So a really great example, right, is Independent Jewish Voices is an incredible organization, a national organization with multiple chapters across the country. But to build that kind of infrastructure, you need that kind of, you need those kinds of resources to be well-resourced, to have paid staff that can do day-to-day -day things like comms and day-to-day -day things like, you know, um, host webinars or, or send out emails or respond to certain immediate crises that might emerge, whether that's something that the, you know, the prime minister has said or, um, something that the the, 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 st the state is engaging in a form of violence or so I think in in the organizational sense I would say that and I don't think it's a it's missing I just think that perhaps this moment will finally enable Palestine solidarity to also open up its resource bank where people might want to give more to a movement that has been under-resourced for years. This is a movement that has been run by, honestly, I, I could name all of them, all the people, because it's it's not that big, you know, it's big, but but at the same time, um, yeah. And so it's an under, which, which in a sense makes it hard, not so much um, to sustain the work because people that are really committed are going to continue to do that work. But I think I think about if there were resources, at what scale could that organizing 
reach to, right? What scale could we could we build a movement? Because now people aren't doing, you know, small tasks, um, like trying to print a poster because you have paid staff that are, you know, making the posters or I don't know, doing this for an event. Um, so so it it seems very silly, but in a sense, actually, part of having coordinated um movement work happen also, as you said, right? Okay, Montreal, Ottawa, Ontario, these might be strongholds for organizing, maybe British Columbia. These are, you know, places where you have both a history of Palestine organizing, um, you have trained activists, you have generations of uh, political people that have been in solidarity with Palestine. But to to grow it in a sense, um, in, in a strong way that goes into areas that perhaps doesn't have this vibrancy or the same level of um, engagement, I think it requires more resources into a movement, not just the human resources, right? But it actually needs money. Um, uh, and I, I don't at all mean to sound like someone who's, you know, um, in any way saying this is about capitalism, but um, yeah, I just think movements and liberation movements had resources, you know, whether it came from, we're not living in a time where we have, let's say, the Soviet Union that is providing, and not that I'm not critical of the Soviet Union, but back in the day, a lot of liberation movements had funding that came to them from states or socialist places, um, th you know, that that was about a particular kind of building a different world, right? That was That was not perhaps let's say what the United States is or or was thinking about an anti-capitalist world. And I think that that enabled movements and liberation struggles to actually make massive achievements because whatever tactics or strategies you use, they need resources. They need resources. And the material resources, I think, is one of the things that we're still missing. Um, and I think if we had that, it would really perhaps... Um, assist in growing this movement exponentially. That's one. I think the other, uh, another piece that we have missing at times is, um, I, 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 again, it's going back and maybe this is more in the academic sector. Maybe the labor movement isn't seeing this in this time. And I mentioned it in my, in my previous answer, but sometimes I do feel that, um, the scale of what is happening in Palestine gets lost because, the the weight of the Zionist lobby is so like big and the 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 characterization of anti-Semitism, like, you know, the tropes around um, labeling people as anti-Semitic or the mischaracterization of people as anti-Semitic or as racist, it, it really plays with people's psyche here. And I think what that sometimes does is it creates a culture of fear that then either makes people self-silence or it leads people to say, hey, be, like, don't, you know, maybe right now is not the time to speak. Um, so while we do see on the one hand, a like radicalization, we see mass peoples in the streets, we also see simultaneously fear, right? And and so sometimes what is missing is that instead of really focusing on the real things that Israel is doing, like if we were to actually understand why is Rafah being targeted? What is, what is the purpose of the targeting of Rafah? right? It is about an ethnic cleansing. It is about actually eliminating um, the ability for Gazans to come back. You know, what does it mean to move people into the Sinai? Like, so what happens then is when people are distracted by the Zionist lobby's tactics here, we're in, we're embroiled in having to fight fires. And what that doesn't allow us to do is actually put our energy into pushing even harder on the main strategic, you know, areas that actually could 
have a significant impact on, um, I think, on what is happening. Um, I think people are really trying with the government, you know, and, and people are really pushing as far as they can. We also know that our political parties um, have deep ties with money that comes from the Zionist lobby. Uh, and and so that's that's a challenge. But what at times is also missing is some of the information that we need to be able to take on, um, you know, some of these uh some of these sectors. So for example, the breach just recently put out this brilliant document, right? Documentation on, um, or it revealed that like X amount of million dollars went on October 7th was sanctioned by the Canadian government. Um, and I know that was the work of activists, right? That did the work that gave that information to the breach. And then they were able to put that out. But if so what is missing again is is access to certain kinds of information, um, having a huge scale of people collecting that information, um, filing FOIAs and having also like just trusted officials that could potentially be supportive in this moment. Of course, there's certain officials that have always been pro-Palestinian and have paid a big price for their pro-Palestinian activism. Um, but I think that has been missing. And, and, and I guess on the media front, what has also been missing is that no matter how much people have tried to call the media to account or politicians to account, the narrative still is constantly one-sided. So what is also missing is that major apparatuses of the state, like the media, like the education sector, these are sectors that regardless of what the ICJ has ruled around plausibility of genocide, despite you know the information coming out of the United Nations or coming out of, you know, respectable human rights organizations, we're not seeing action. And I think that is really missing. From the academic sector, I will say this. The entire educational infrastructure of Gaza has been completely destroyed. Knowledge systems, you know, every university has been bombed, mostly destroyed, over 378 schools. You have this mass destructions, archives, libraries, museums, you know, academics that are being targeted and killed. The number I have right now is 166. That's not what official, you know, reports say, but the information I have from the ground is saying 166 academics so far are identified as killed. Now, why in a moment like this would a university in this country not say anything? You know, when Ukraine happened, there were immediate statements that were made around um, the Ukraine war. There was support for students. There were all kinds of scholarships. They were, you know, there were all kinds of things that were done. And in this moment that like in our sector, that has been missing, the silence on the scholasticide, the silence on a genocide. Um, we have, you know, the world's smartest minds that really know what is going on, including scholars that can analyze this, legal scholars that know legally what is happening and what Israel is doing. We have scholars that know what genocide is, genocide studies scholars that are putting out reports on how this is, you know, a, a, this is absolutely genocide. You have all kinds of, you know, mathematicians and scientists that understand what kinds of bombs and weaponry are being used to kind of create the, the really devastating conditions on the ground. You have medical doctors who understand the medical side of what is taking place, right? So when you have a, a sector, a, a massive sector of intellectuals that both understand this, not from just the political angle, but actually understand this from a scholarly, you know, scholarly scholarly angle, whichever discipline you're from, right? Whether you're history, political science, security studies, social science, humanities, women and gender studies, there is an angle to understand this. And the fact that there is no position taken by any Canadian university 
it's appalling. And and I would say this is the case in the United States and many, many places in the world. So what is missing is um, places like universities that should be leaders of, you know, putting out positions right now that support those that are vocal around Palestine and that try to actually prevent a genocide. That to me is missing. And finally, what is also missing is putting pressure. And I know international law has its limits. It has many issues. But why is there not enough pressure in trying to uphold international law? Why is this government, why is this country not doing enough? Every day I, I see Melanie Jolie is meeting with, you know, today uh, she's meeting with the Israeli president. You know, to me, I, I don't understand. Like, what are you doing speaking to a war criminal that is committing this genocide? Like, you're going to really talk to these people about security. What is it that you need to be doing? So what is missing also is, I, I, I suppose, um, action that really, really pushes, um, if at the very least, it pushes Israel to at least adhere to international law, that to me is the red line, you know? So it's missing from the level of like the organizing, there are certain things missing there, but I would put the bigger blame on the big dogs because the little people are doing all the little things, um, to actually move the people who actually have I mean, I'm not, people power is an incredible source of power, but there's a different kind of power that our states, you know, have, these states have. And I think my students, you know, in the classroom, they're like, you know, even though we're so motivated by this moment and we're going to keep going to the streets and we're going to, you know, go to the demos and we're going to organize, they're all, they're also defeated by constantly feeling like, you know, we move in one direction and then the government does this thing to to kill, you know, something else. So ICJ has an order. People are excited that this could be an opportunity um, to bring things to their institutions. The next day Canada comes out, it cuts funding to UNRWA, the lifeline of Palestinian refugees. I mean, so how to keep also people's hopes alive um, in this moment is something I think about a lot because when there's a win, there's something even bigger that comes back in a, in a harsh way. Um, And so I think that's missing is yeah. How to, how to keep, accountability going. Uh, I think that's it. That's, that's, those are my thoughts for now. <laughs> I, yeah, I completely agree. I think that's all very spot on. And I think, um, yeah, you mentioned a lot of points that I think I want to hit on too. And just to say that we're seeing tons of activity, it's been an outpouring of people doing things, but it hasn't always been strategic or coordinated or organized. And I think there's a lot happening like here. And David, you mentioned that there's a difference, of course, between the major cities in Canada, be it Ottawa, Montreal, Vancouver, and, you know, the cities in the prairies or like where I'm from in the East Coast where there is stuff happening, but it picked up a lot later and it's not the same scale, or not the same frequency. Um, but even kind of in Ottawa and those big cities, we've been seeing weekly demonstrations. And uh, I think they've become a bit routine. They peaked probably late November and then started declining in numbers, of course, as it got cold, but also as it became a bit of a routine and people felt like, okay, I'm going to do the weekly Palestine protest, but then, you know, if you miss this one or the next one, what does it really change? Because it's happening. And so I think there's that, like people feel the need to do something, but we haven't really figured out how to do something strategic together. And I think there's a tendency to try to, you know, there's that old quote about living next to the U.S. is like sleeping in bed with an elephant. The smallest move sends you flying. And I think we kind of like always think and try to copy what the U.S. activists are doing. Um, 
which is great some of the time, but like, you know, in terms of like national rallies or things and letting that guide the strategy of what we do versus, you know, thinking about and analyzing conditions here, weaknesses and opportunities and trying to like move. Um, and that's on a national scale. I think like there's just so many people who want to do something that like tons of people are doing everything you can imagine. Some are like blockading railways. Some are like try targeting city councils and getting them to pass motions. Some are targeting businesses. Some are doing boycotts. Um, some are trying to boycott tons and tons of things, kind of not exactly the advice of the BFC or the, you know, the BDS call for strategic boycotts. Um, and some are just like, making postcards and everything and not to say that not to shit on any of that i think it's all useful but i think just having activity isn't necessarily going to build and uh, as shani mentioned that um the organizations that exist they're small they're understaffed they're under-resourced and they're doing the best they can but we're barely like catching like even a couple percent i think just a very rough estimate like hundreds of thousands of people have been put into action and politicized through these events are we catching thousands of them? I would say largely not. Um, and it's because we just don't have capacity. We don't have the systems. We don't have the structure. We don't have the resources. Um, and then I think like you, you posed a really interesting question. Like how do we do this without staff, without the resources, without sort of nonprofit money? And I think that's kind of often what I grapple with because I think like that has to be where we ultimately go to avoid a lot of the pitfalls of the nonprofit models. Like how do we create structures that can scale to build an actual social movement of millions of people? And how do we do it on next to or no money? Um, but because that doesn't exist right now, like none of the left, no real left organizations that are possible for that, let alone like specific Palestine solidarity organizations, we're all scrambling, kind of like just skimming off the top of people who we can reach and get involved and trying to keep racing to build capacity and do more. And I think, you know, I often think of this moment of we're in, it's kind of like living in the shadow of the, the dead or the near dead left in which like all of our institutions, all of our organizations over the last 40 years have been fragmented or destroyed. Um, and we're trying to figure out what it means to have a mass organization. You know, in the past, if you look at social movements, there's been a lot of like membership based organizations that guided it and provided coordination that just don't exist today and haven't existed in my entire life. So not only are we like trying to figure out like how to make them, but we're trying to figure out even like the DNA and basics of them. We're like talking about like structures and coordinating committees and bylaws and all this stuff and trying to figure out a way to actually harness this moment, this whirlwind that we in, we're in and to go deeper and longer. And it's a challenge and I hope we're figuring it out and building more. I think part of what excites me for Labour for Palestine is that we are like cohering radicals across unions, across workplaces uh, and across the entire labor movement. And like, I think there's a bit of a generational divide at the top of labor and the people who are in charge and a lot of the rank and fall, a lot of the workers who don't see their interests reflected either at the bargaining table or in other positions, including Palestine. Um, and I think, you know, I think about all the activities that are happening, all of the, you know, there's constantly uh, new for Palestine groups. I think I saw like a cycling for Palestine or like uh, drag shows for Palestine recently. And it's fantastic. And I think we have to talk about national coordination uh, and figure out some sort of strategy because we can do stuff, but we have to like have in our aim, put our sights on dismantling 
Canada's support for Israel and Israeli apartheid. You know, we can't delude ourselves into thinking that we here can free Palestine. That's, you know, foolhardy for a number of reasons. But our role as uh, in the solidarity movement and a part of it is to try to undermine and take away Canada's active support, its military support, its financial support, its diplomatic support for Israel, and then actually flip it all the way to be uh, to move that pillar and to start to put pressure on the other side in terms of boycotts, divestments, and sanctions on Israel. Um, and I think we're not there yet. And there's no real spaces for people to, in groups, these, I wouldn't say we have any mass organizations in Canada, but like be they left groups, solidarity groups, NGOs, whatever, there's not many spaces for us actually to come together and talk about strategy, to debate, to figure out who are the targets. You know, if we actually want Canada to declare a ceasefire in a real way, or if we want Canada to stop arming Israel, who do we target? Who has the power to give us that? And what are we doing to make the pressure on them insurmountable until they ultimately cave? We're not having those conversations. And so people in the absence of that are just doing stuff because they feel utterly compelled to, of course, given the genocide that's happening and unfolding before our eyes. And unions, for the large part, are still supportive of Israel, or they're utterly unwilling to take a position. It could be because of the Zionist attack they fear, or just because they feel like it's a distraction. We know that the Canadian Labour Congress has been, you know, the largest labour body uh, in the country, has been unwilling to take a stand and they've even told staff, they've instructed staff not to talk about Palestine and Israel. This is despite them having a 2021 resolution that is in effect BDS. And the CLC also has a longstanding partnership with the History Duke. It's equivalent of the Labor Federation body in Israel. And that goes unchallenged. And it's also the case in many other national unions where they're not talking about it. They're trying to their best to make sure resolutions on Palestine don't come up at local meetings, at, at conventions. And, you know, as you mentioned, faculty associations, for the most part, have said nothing. They haven't even like while there's a scholasticide, well, the academic system has been utterly destroyed. They're not saying that under some abs some like guise of objectivity or trying to be neutral or like not be too political. And it's the contrast is is stark, right? For Ukraine, and you see it. And the same thing with healthcare unions and other unions like that. And I think the other thing that really stood out to me that you mentioned is the the disconnect between what everyday Canadians are feeling, the most part, the vast majority of the population who are taking to the streets, who are writing their MPs, who are doing things like that, and the actual ruling class. You know, I don't have the numbers here, but poll after poll kind of shows that. When asked about it, the majority of Canadians think our relationship with Israel is wrong, it's harmful, and they're opposed to it, and they generally support Palestine. And it's been that way for a long time, but it doesn't really matter to the people in charge. And that's because we don't have the power to change it. And so I think like what's missing is that power. And to draw it in contrast, I think, to earlier like social movements in Canada, I think a lot about, you know, the shutdown Canada movement of 2020, which acted in solidarity with the the West Sudan protests and the blockades that gridlocked large parts of the country where there were rail blockades and highway blockades for weeks on end in a way that actually challenges capital and challenges power in a very deep and structural way. And we haven't seen anything like that here yet. And there's a number of reasons for that. But ultimately, I think like we don't haven't built the power in a key and strategic way to be a, to be a threat. And I think the other element of that is not just like protests and direct actions, but job action. You know, one of the things that was very effective in 
ending apartheid in South Africa, particularly in the Canadian context, was the refusal to be complicit with apartheid in the workplace, in your job. And we saw, you know, in the past, postal workers refusing to deliver mail to apartheid South Africa. We, we saw dock workers refusing to load cargo, what we called hot cargo, to South Africa. And there's been a couple examples of people trying to get that started in the last maybe like five, eight years in Canada, but the labor movement hasn't supported it. And it, it just, it hasn't come in the same way. And I think it's only when you get to that stage of like building power in strategic industries and strategic places and actually posing a threat, are we going to get that gap to uh, to diminish between everyday people and what we all want and what the ruling class is willing to do? I want to just undermine the point about membership organizations that, that came up because I think they're really important for a number of, of reasons, um, both as a way for people to become more than just people who attend rallies and do things like that, um, much as that's, of course, essential. Um, but if people are actually going to find a way to become ongoing organizers and to learn new skills and talk to other people and deepen their understanding and so on, membership organizations are just irreplaceable um, for that. And they're also, as was mentioned, really important for discussing strategy and where we're trying to go and how we're trying to get there. And also, I think they're, it's connected to the resource issue, right? Because they're really, they can be very important for um, generating money and bringing together and coordinating different kinds of skills and person power. Um, so I think that's a challenge. So in some cities, it's quite clear if you want to be involved, what to join. And in other places, it's not, or maybe it depends. Um, you know, there are a whole number of organizations in Winnipeg, for example, that people can join. They're mostly pretty small, um, but they're, they're also quite specific. And if you don't happen to fit into one of the categories, like the identity groups or kind of focuses of those existing groups, then there's nothing. There's no kind of catch-all. Um, and again, I think this varies a lot depending on where you are. But I think it's a, another feature of the, the moment that we're in. Um, I'll just to say as a, as a head of historical uh, connection um, that the, the, I think we have to be careful looking back at the aid that was given by the USSR and its allies to liberation movements because that was, I think, ultimately subordinated to the interests of the rulers of those societies in terms of how they gave that aid and also the particular kinds of politics that they then exported to those to movements and the way they influenced them politically, I think was often um, at the at best contradictory and sometimes worse than that um, in terms of the actual ab ability of those struggles to, to win. So that's, that's a, a difficult legacy to, um, to reckon with, but clearly, yes, there are important changes um, now compared to, to then. Okay. So then the last question I want to ask is about what you think people in the society who want to act in solidarity with Palestine should do in the months ahead. Uh, because, of course, we have to sometimes set priorities and uh, really try to focus. So what do you think are the, the next steps, next links in the chain? Yeah, that's the burning question. I mean, for me, I think one of the things that we need to do is, especially for people who become newer, act, newly involved and newly activated around this issue and are getting engaged, I think the biggest thing is to commit to the long haul, to recognize that the moment we're in right now is a whirlwind, and it is uh, unprecedented in many ways, um, but we have to think about what we're doing beyond it. You know, one of my biggest fears is that, say, a ceasefire is declared, then all the interest, the massive outpouring of support kind of goes away, and then the next time Israel does something awful, uh, we're stuck scrambling to try to build the structures, and I don't want to to diminish the current thing that's happening right now, the current moment we're in, say like it is genocide and it is unprecedented um, and it is horrific and appalling and Canada's support for it, I think 
it is unlike past moments. And there's always kind of every few years, there's a war on Gaza from Israel with Canada's support, those attacks, but it is particularly horrific right now in which we are using the term genocide, rightly so. But I think we we owe it to Palestinians to fight not just until the current genocide stops, but until liberation across all the Palestinian territories, including the West Bank, Gaza, inside Israel and Jerusalem, and for all the diaspora. Uh, and to really have that as our focus. And there's a lot we can do to do that and think about it. You know, we think about people like, you know, one of the most eye-opening things in uh, for me, was going to Palestine and talking to people and talking to people who are older than the state of Israel and just like talking about how they've committed to the struggle and how people there and how they think of it. Um, and I think we have to have that long view, not to be patient, not to be kind in any way, but to recognize that we are building something that is so big. And I often think that like Israel is not just Israel. It's not just an apartheid state. It's a sort of uh, like linchpin in the whole global economic order. It is a client state for the US and it's a key part of empire that suppresses uh, movements and people's liberation across the region and across the world at large. And so all of that we have to bear in mind. And I think we have to do a ton of education. We have to educate ourselves constantly. I think um, the situation in Palestine, it's not complicated. It's like, you know, there's that classic Zionist talking point about it being complicated. And it's not at all. It's very clear. It's, it's black and white. But what is complicated is just the sheer nature of apartheid, the many, many ways where it shows up, it changes, it limits people's lives. Like while I was there the few times, every day my heart broke in a new way because I think it's just like, it's so multifaceted. The whole society, I was only in the West Bank and uh, and inside 48 in Jerusalem, but it's just built upon violence. And it's so hard to wrap your head around that. And I think understanding that, understanding what Palestinians are living through and talking about and the ways that they're strategizing, like reading their own documents, reading the different strategies and discussions and debates that Palestinians and the Palestinian Liberation Organization has had throughout the years is deeply enriching and will like and benefit us in many ways. Um, and then I think we need to really think about like, how do we build structures? This is kind of, you know, why I take like Palestine solidarity takes up all of my free time is because I'm thinking, particularly in the context of labor Palestine, how do we make sure that this whirlwind is actually harnessed and we are fundamentally changing the conditions in Canada to alter the fabric of our relationship with Israel and Palestine, both in the labor movement, but across the political system uh, as a whole. And it's, it's hard. It's a challenge. And I think, I think there's a lot to do. And there's a tendency too for labor Palestine over the past and a bit recently too, is to make a run at a union convention where somebody wants to put in a resolution, be it ceasefire, BDS, and just make a go at it and try to organize, mobilize for the convention to get it passed, which is fantastic. It's really useful. But the even like it's hard, it's an uphill battle if you don't do that longer term work of organizing, educating. But it can also mean that uh, a resolution just sits on the books and the union doesn't actually build a real connection to Palestine. They're not educating their members. They're not directing them to solidarity movement activities and stuff like that. And so what we've learned in Labor for Palestine is like the need to really go and be systematic, and, like go local by local and workplace by workplace, labor council, and to do that education and to train a network of trainers who can then do that and build those connections. And so that we're bubbling from the ground up so that, you know, if like, leadership changes at a national union or the CLC, um, 
that can't just get ignored because the will of the membership is there. Um, and you can think about those those structural changes too, like the, the Postal Workers Union, CUPW, actually hasn't written in their constitution their support for Palestine. Um, so you can think about stuff like that. And I think we need to have national coordinating spaces to have these debates and talk about strategy. There's a couple that have been trying to start up over the last couple months, nothing overly successful. Um, and that can happen at you know the regional or local level or at the national all are important and i think you know david your point about uh some cities having that and some not and i would say it's it's very mixed bag like even here in ottawa there is technically that but really it's only for a couple groups and it's largely like people of arab descent or palestinian descent um and it's full of contradictions of course you know the palestinian organizations that are still quite active are largely cultural and social organizations. And those are all perfectly legitimate and a result of history, but it leads to political tensions, you know, even just like little things about like, should we be flying Canadian flags at rallies? Should we be inviting NDP members of parliament to speak? Um, and I think we just need a bigger way to be having these conversations and tapping into everyone that's getting involved. Um, and I think um, perhaps like, you know, on an individual basis, one of the things that you know we need to do as as organizers is to think about how we're delegating, to not do everything ourselves, to not try to make ourselves uh, heroes or like feels awfully use the expression martyrs, but you know what I mean. Uh, and just doing tons of stuff individually, we need to delegate. You need to train up others and think about like how are we building organizations that can survive and thrive without us, and like literally reaching doing what we need to do to reach millions of people and like practice those good organizing skills. Um, and I think, yeah, I think really highlighting the connection that Canada has in building and maintaining apartheid and occupation and now the current genocide in Israel, not just like we've been supportive of Israel, but like Canada has been a chief architect at every step of the way, ever since like well before 1948 and the very bloody founding of Israel and the Nakba to the current day. We need to be thinking about that and analyzing it and really highlighting that and working to see what it means. And I see a lot of um, young people today talking about Canada's history as a settler colonial state in, par in comparison and parallel with Israel's. And I think that's a really important thing to bring up. And also I think it misses a piece too, because the shared, like the parallel history doesn't necessarily explain the support today for Israel. And I think that missing point is imperialism. Like, as I mentioned about Israel being that sort of client state, that linchpin of the global economic order. And, you know, people in Palestine, they're very clear, like, especially on the left, that like what they're battling against are many of the same forces that we're battling against in terms of capitalism, in terms of austerity, in terms of global market forces. Um, and thinking about like, what are the ways in which our resistances and our pushes for liberation, different as they might be, how do they overlap? And how do we how do we have that? Um, and then I think finally, uh, and perhaps in a bit more glib point, uh, I see, especially with a lot of younger people, I've been trying to organize a lot of like distributed organizing uh, around the country. Um, there's a real fetishization of direct action and security culture. You know, people are like, oh, we can't be on WhatsApp. We have to be on Signal. We can't talk about this in text. And that's fine. Like direct action is good. Um, but the direct actions that have happened to date are largely photo ops just because we don't have power on the left to do anything more, to actually shut down major industries in Canada or major cities or intersections. And so they're like a small number of people that don't necessarily build power. 
they gain skills, they're good, they give people courage, confidence, and they should be done. Absolutely, they should be done. But there's a tendency to think like to see that, see those videos on Instagram, on TikTok, and think like that's how it's going to happen. And it's actually like I don't know if I've become maybe I've just become a, a lot more liberal and conservative as I've gotten older. And I'm like, no, just like talk to your neighbors and coworkers. Like that's the bread and butter. Start organizing and building piece by piece by piece. Forget the security culture. Like do the education until the point you know. Like leave the general strike conversation for a lot longer because you know we need to do the elementary, the bread and butter first. Chalni, over to you for the last words. Yeah, thank you, James. That is so spot on. I feel like I'll probably just reiterate most of what you've said because I agree. I mean, first and foremost, we have to build beyond a ceasefire. I think from jump, you know, I have been really thinking about are we going to lose momentum when we lose, when when a ceasefire is in effect, are people going to go back into their homes and, and live, you know, life as usual as though this moment has not happened? Palestine, right now, what is happening in Palestine has changed the world. Um, and I, I I am optimistic that we aren't going to lose this mass movement of people, but there's a possibility that after a ceasefire, half of the people that we have been mobilizing, uh, we might actually see go back to business as usual and, you know, go back go back to their lives um, and and not really get involved in a in a tangible way in organizing. Um, and I think that brings me to the centrality and importance of building a mass movement. And while we outline some of the challenges of that, I think this is important. And I think that building this mass movement has to be multi-sectoral. Like I think that um, one sector can't take on, uh, <laughs> yeah, this uh, scale of colonial violence. Um, I think that building mass movements means Palestine is part of a broader left that is strong. And so whatever mechanisms of our left have fallen apart, the question is, can Palestine be the entryway that allows us to not only build a solidarity movement again in a in a strong way because it's here, but how do we revive aspects um, around the left that enable us to um, really, you know, revive uh, different organizations or important traditions that have been lost with time. I heard... Um, you know, today on, on Instagram, there was an L for P Vancouver person, Kayla. I heard her on, you know, and, and she was talking about this history that her family had in the labor movement. And then they sort of stepped back and that she wants to, you know, revive some of that old tradition, both familial, but also collective in terms of what she um, has seen in the labor movement. And I think about, you know, what if, what if the new generation, despite the internal contradictions and the generational differences, what if part of building um, some of this already happened in existing structures, right? Like unions, associations, collectives that might that might already have some infrastructure. But then also there is the specific Palestine solidarity movement and, and mass movement building there, which again, I'm saying is multi-sectoral because also sometimes movements need strategic guidance that comes from, let's say, a Palestine solidarity movement um, especially on its politics, right? Um, so I think building that, building power, I 120% agree with in that. You know that the Wet'suwet'en um, blockades uh, and the railway blockades and the sort of direct action that really impeded um, flows of capital across this country was one of the most inspiring moments in history that I've lived in. Like that was, you know, and to participate in that um in that in in that 
in in the protest during that time and and to be you know in solidarity with with our indigenous warriors that to me was one of the most um eye-opening moments around what direct action could look like in this country of course i've studied it you know in books um but to see it in the way that we did and i remember going through a map of every blockade across you know it was un- unreal um, and the kinds of solidarities that also other nations took across this country and the coordination around that. Of course, you know, after three weeks, you had the prime minister really upset, saying enough is enough. Like, this has to stop now. And I think that that is a moment that reminds me that that's a kind of power. And of course, Indigenous people have been resisting here for 500 years. And so maybe there's a kind of particular experience um, in sort of you know, uh, indigenous communities that they they are able to organize particular kind in particular kinds of ways, despite you know constant state surveillance and state violence on indigenous communities. So I think for me that is a is a really vibrant example of building people power or building power and and direct action, not just being photo ops or symbolic um, moments where we capture the streets. Yes, it might have some impact on pressure, but it may not be you know doing what uh, we might anticipate uh, around a revolutionary changes. And so to build these mass movements or to build a mass movement that's multi-sectoral, we have to build the structures. Structures are in place, but they need more. And I do think that, you know, strategic conversations are incredibly necessary. James, I know you know this because I feel it, but the internal contradictions we often grapple with it as organizers, it is sometimes so challenging to work around, you know, some of the dynamics and some of the issues that emerge and real good organizers work with humility and listen and patience and do the stuff. But sometimes it's very difficult work. And if there were broader strategic conversations, it might enable sort of the resolution of some of the internal contradictions that we see. That's the way I look at some of the challenges that have emerged in this moment. And I think that when we build power and mass movements, you don't have one group that thinks it's the vanguard, you know? And I think that that's also something that um, younger generations, you know, need to like look at and, and think about is that sometimes when there is, you know, this idea that we're more radical than now or have more strategic insight, what that could sometimes do is actually, it might not take into consideration some of the ways that mass movements have been actually destroyed historically. And so it's really important to think about what are the internal contradictions that are emerging and how do we think about them within strategic conversations that allow us to not personalize it as like, oh, there's this person has an issue with this person or this group has an issue with this group. Because actually people who are doing political organizing, it is not about individuals, right? It is precisely about a collective and building not just structures, but building people power. So building skills and training activists and organizers. So so when somebody gets sick or burnt out or can't continue that work or has to deal with a family crisis or decides they want to have a child or whatever it is that people want to, you know, reshift energies into, a movement doesn't fall apart. And I think that sometimes when we organize in reactionary moments, that you see a particular kind of formation of people that come together. But when then that problem is kind of put to rest, the reactionary aspect of um, the organizing also kind of dies. And so I'm not saying we're reactionary because I do think there has been 
long-term structures that have been built and people who have been trained. But at moments, um, you know, it does feel sort of reactionary and trying to like grapple with the moment. And I think that with a lot of the masses that we're seeing in the streets, that's what I worry that is it just reactionary and then we're going to lose people when a ceasefire comes. And I think like I reflect on the Egyptian revolution a lot. I remember being at one of the MST um, massive conference uh, conferences in Brazil with the landless people workers movement. And one of the things that kept coming up, you know, by the Egyptian delegation that was there, they were all part of the Egyptian revolution. One of the things that they said that one of the pitfalls of the revolution was that it was even though it looked organized from the outside, it wasn't. We had a lot of, like, you may have had small contingents from different groups organized or different sectors organized little groups, but because there wasn't a national organized strategy, eventually when either the targeting by the state came or people were being thrown in prison or different things were taking place, eventually the the revolution kind of collapsed. So I think also recent uprisings and recent revolutionary action that has taken place to look at different parts of the world to not just study them, but to be in dialogue with the people who have organized, you know, in these mass either movements or revolutions to really think about lessons that are across the globe. Because as James mentioned, some of the targets, right, imperialist targets, capitalist targets, um, and, and targets of other sorts, they are global. They're not just local targets. And so we, we might, you know, when I think about a leftist internationalism, what could that look like if we were to center Palestine vis-a-vis other global issues, but tying together colonialism, imperialism, capitalism, racism, some of the major threads that um, are impacting people around the world. And I think this is one of the things the BDS movement has really highlighted, right? That the weapons that are killing Palestinians and are being tested in Gaza on all of these, you know, millions of people are going to be sold in massive trade shows that are going to go and, you know, quell movements and be used on marginalized, poor and racialized populations in different parts of the world, whether that's in India, whether that's, you know, um, in um, the Philippines, whether that's in the United States, right? Or here in Canada. Like, so to me, there is an importance around also thinking globally and being able to have strategic conversations globally around um, around some of these issues. BDS is a long-term strategy, right? So on the one hand, while right now we are seeing consumer boycotts being um, waged and companies being impacted in um, their revenues, uh, and we might see, you know, like in the U.S. there was a campus that divested, we might see some of these as more immediate from the work I've done on these campaigns, it is, it's long, long work. It's long-term work. Um, and so it that requires movement building, but also patience and strategy in and of itself because um, long-term work, yeah, requires commitment. And we can't just also invite people to a movement that are going to be like, well, if it's not going to happen fast enough, we're going to have to like not organize. So perhaps creating like, you know, tier systems where, there are people who are like, just like we're into direct action and that's it. That's all we have capacity for. But people who want to actually do long-term, not just movement building work, but then long-term political work around whether it's boycotts, divestments, or sanctions. Because if this siege does not end and this occupation does not end and the genocide scales back and some other form takes place and liberation hasn't come to Palestine, we are going to have to strengthen and continue to push 
for boycott, divestments, and sanctions. We're going to have to do that. I think for that work, educationals are constantly key because while the situation in Palestine for 75 years since the Nakba, while so much of the political and social conditions or economic conditions um, and the conditions of colonial settler colonial violence are the same, right? They've just evolved in different ways. Um, we They are specificities of what happens across time and space um, and tactical shifts that the Israeli state has used over the Palestinian struggle that might shift particular um, moments. And so analytics are really important, the shifting analytics. And I gave you a really good example, right? We went from like occupation, apartheid to settler colonialism and, and genocide. Um, and that sometimes the analytics that are in tune with what it, the analytics and politics are on the ground, it enables us to actually um, also sharpen the kind of organizing and the tactics that we need to deploy um, in our in our kind of work. Um, I think all the things that people want to do, the direct actions, sure. Um, but again, as long as it's, there's a eventual political end goal there. It's not just symbolic. Um, I think that that's what happens. That that's what matters. I also think holding uh, politicians accountable in this country is important. And and really, as James mentioned, there's a long history of Canada's not just support for Israel, but even the creation of the state of Israel. Um, Canada played a huge role in in the partition plan. It has played a massive role um, at the United Nations around vetoes um, that it has taken constantly in support of the apartheid state. Uh, we are seeing its support unrelentingly in this moment, despite all kinds of, um, you know, um, calls from an international judicial body, the world court that is saying we have to prevent genocide. So I think that, again, holding politicians accountable and taking into consideration the country's past and present and future uh, moves and, and history, revealing some of that and trying to push against the military, financial, diplomatic um, connections and ties are really, really, really important. Um, on the labor movement front, the one thing that James mentioned in one of the earlier answers, and I, and I, or one of the earlier pieces, was the role of the histrodute. This, I mean, any labor body in this country that has ties to the histrodute, they really need to really rethink what the histrodute is. What is the histrodute's relationship to colonialism and ongoing? Um, you know, violence that is that is taking place on the Palestinians. Um, so again, I mean, even though I, I was talking about direct action broadly, this is a major, major, major piece. Um, within the academic sector, more just needs to happen at every front. People need to be a bit more courageous. Um, and um, one of the things that academics have is protected speech. We have academic freedom. And I think that sometimes people get so scared that they're not understanding that we are one of the one sectors in the country that has protected speech. And so it is actually not the time for silence, whether that will be in the future when a ceasefire comes, is to continuously to, like create spaces for teaching and learning um, and speaking up because that is creating shifts in our students' consciousness. And then many of these students are actually the, the people that we're going to see in the demos, in the rallies that are that are going to be the future leaders of many of the organizations that we might be talking about. We came out of the, that movement, right? And so I, I think about the centrality of that. And finally, I think, um, you know, when it comes to the liberation of Palestine, the liberation of Palestine will ultimately deci be decided by the people of Palestine um, and by 
the Palestinians both inside and in the diaspora, but our solidarity will strengthen those efforts. And, you know, whatever it takes for us to stand in principled solidarity with the people struggling against colonial violence, racial violence, um, and decades of impunity, um, I think showing our principal solidarity with this struggle is is of utmost uh, importance until liberation. And finally, I think holding on to hope. The images that we see, um, you know, around us, James and I are probably surrounded by so many friends, comrades, and loved ones that are losing family members in in mass numbers. Um, as it's not, yeah, and I so I think that sometimes the scale of violence, um, both in terms of death. The scale of infrastructural damage and seeing the kinds of ways that Gaza has become made unlivable, seeing reports of, you know, sexual violence or torture for political prisoners. When we see the scale of violence, it is it is hard sometimes to lose um, strength and it might be hard. It, it might it might be mom- these might be moments when we see this scale of violence and Israel's impunity. We might lose hope um, and not to sound you know flaky, but I think that. Hope is very much about uh, about revolution. And um, without hope, I don't think we can reach liberation. So I, I think that that is something that if we hold on to um, and stand in principle solidarity till liberation, um, yeah, that's all I think we can contribute to at this time. It's been a whirlwind since October. It still is. So I want to really thank you both for taking the time to step outside of it for, you know, for an hour to, to talk about these questions. I think it's really valuable. I also want to encourage listeners who haven't heard these episodes to check out some of the other recent episodes of Victor's Children that are connected to what we've been talking about today. Um, for example, episode 36 was on what kind of anti-imperialism, which I think is an important question as people are coming to anti-imperialist politics. Um, the last episode, uh, number 37, was an interview with Moshe McCover, a longtime uh, Israeli anti-Zionist socialist about strategy. Um, and also um, episodes 31 and 33 were about imperialism in the world today. So check those out and other back episodes of Victor's Children. And also check out the show notes to this episode where you'll find some uh, articles and other things that should be useful resources. Thanks for listening. That's it for this episode of Victor's Children. I'd like to thank Jonathan Croker, the producer of Victor's Children, without whom the podcast wouldn't be possible. I'd also like to thank Posey Legg, who designed the graphic for Victor's Children. If you found the episode worth listening to, please do tell other people about the show, since word-of-mouth recommendations are especially helpful. If you don't subscribe through your preferred podcast app, please do. And while you're there, please give the show a high rating. It helps to promote us. If you have a suggestion for an episode or some other kind of constructive feedback, feel free to be in touch with me. You can contact me through victorschildren at gmail.com.